Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast, where we attempt to take apart education and then put it back together in a more meaningful way. I'm Rob McLeod. On this episode, how sensitivity impacted what a school education looks like. Three things, four values. A school education does three things. Occupational preparation, the cultivation of citizenship, and self-development. How this is done is influenced by values. There are four main values currently influencing school education. Self-discipline, ambition, sensitivity, and development. Each value has emerged sequentially. First came self-discipline-centric schooling, which emerged in Prussia in 1763. Self-discipline-centered education supported the compliance with authority required in an industrial and military society still influenced by the social culture of feudalism. This pressure model was adopted by almost every country around the world within a century. Second, school education centered around the value of ambition emerged. It began to take root by the late 1800s. It became the dominant value in education worldwide by the mid-1900s. Ambition-centered schooling aimed to filter students through meritocracy. Student achievement sorted who had access to further education and what kind of work you were qualified for. If you did well in school, you did well in the workforce. Now we'll explore the third value, sensitivity. Sensitivity being the awareness of the needs and emotions of others. Students experience a system influenced by sensitivity, and the intention is that students leaving such a system demonstrate sensitivity, so that, as a citizen, they demonstrate a capacity for social responsibility and inclusion. This prepares them for an occupation in a socialist-leaning economy or within the connection economy. An educational cocktail. Describing values in education is messy. As each value emerges, it influences what school education looks like. But as a new value shows up, it doesn't mark the end of the previous value. Rather, they sit alongside each other, battle one another, blend with each other, and influence each other. Think of it like an educational cocktail. The orange juice, ginger ale, and grenadine are already mixed and shaken. We are attempting to identify each flavor present in that mix. As we start the discussion of the sensitivity value, I want to highlight that this will be the most difficult to articulate so far. And that's because sensitivity is the new kid on the block. It is still very early days for the value of sensitivity in education. It only started to influence national public education in some countries over the last two to three decades. We see it taking root most explicitly in countries like Finland, Denmark, Canada, Sweden, Norway, Belgium, New Zealand, and the Netherlands. What these countries share is a tendency towards a more socialist-leaning version of capitalism. Sensitivity-centered education is influencing many international school systems as well, including the IB, better known as the International Baccalaureate. So, what are the defining features of sensitivity-centered education? Here are a few. Deconstructing the classroom, deconstructing the curriculum, privileging process and individual thinking, teachers as supporters, negotiation, student voice and consensus, and inclusive students. Sensitivity, a reaction to ambition. 
To fully appreciate the characteristics of sensitivity in education, it's helpful to see why they emerged. Sensitivity-centered education is a reaction to ambition-centric education and the inequality built into its structure. Ambition education attempted to be a meritocracy. Sensitivity has emerged in response to the shortcomings of ambition's ability to create a meritocracy effectively. Think of ambition education being like a board game. Everyone is on the same board, competing for the best possible outcome. The board is one size fits all for all players. The belief is that all students are playing the same game and that they're playing the same game makes it fair. All players have the opportunity for access to the game. Everyone is provided with the same curriculum and provided with the same expectations. It's up to you to perform and achieve. The better you do, the more merit you have. The level of merit you demonstrate impacts your access to options regarding future stages of school or entry points into the workforce. Now, the problem is that the players don't start this game at the same level of difficulty. Students are not all the same. Sensitivity acknowledges that groups of students are not a homogenous group. The board may be the same, but the game itself is not the same for each player. The finish lines for leaving the board and entering the workforce are uniform, but the ease with which to reach them varies incredibly from player to player. Now, just some of the factors that influence student achievement that are out of the student's control include biological, behavioral, cultural, relational, systemic, and financial factors. Biological factors, such as biological cognitive capacities or challenges. Behavioral factors. The ambition system rewards a relatively narrow band of behaviors that otherwise can penalize a student depending on their personality. Cultural factors. A school's norms are influenced by its country's social norms. This becomes evident when moving between schools in different countries. An A student can become a C student in a different country or vice versa. Certain cultural, religious, or even family norms may or may not be a fit to an ambition school's norms. Relational factors. Teacher-student relationship alone. Certain teachers can clash with certain students. Ultimately, this can impact their learnings and grades for an entire year or semester. The child's grades may change dramatically with a different teacher the following year. A particular teacher's style or personality may gel or clash with a student and thus impact their scores in the meritocracy. Outside of school, the child and caregiver relationship has an incredible impact on a kid's ability to perform and show their merit within school. Systemic factors? Well, certain arbitrary systemic norms in the classroom or for testing may impede student performance. Minor modifications to things as simple as seating arrangements or the format of answers can have a dramatic impact on a student's final grade. Financial factors. Some children's caregivers can afford additional tutoring, rich cultural experiences, home libraries, internet access, breakfast. Some caregivers can provide additional help themselves, while others may not be present due to their work. This is just the tip of the iceberg regarding factors other than student ambition that influence student achievement. The one-size-fits-all measuring stick of the ambition-centered schools 
has its shortcomings. And these shortcomings can be exploited for gain or work to oppress others with unfair challenges. This impacts what opportunities are available for an individual in their life after school. And sensitivity-centered education acknowledges this Sensitivity-centered education acknowledges the advantages and disadvantages that individuals experience within the gamified, ambition-centered education system. Best player, wrong game. What about students who are bright, but not in ways that school privileges? Cristiano Ronaldo may dominate on the football pitch, but if we filtered him out of sports, due to his mid-level capacities in ice hockey, He'd miss his opportunity to shine and contribute to his field. The potential of many individuals has been snuffed out due to the ambition game. In particular, because of the limited range of criteria that it uses to assess and filter, what is easy to assess is what's used to filter. But what is easy to assess isn't necessarily what's most needed in the world. But Things need to be kept simple to filter a country's entire population at a reasonable cost to taxpayers. Being efficient doesn't necessarily lead to being effective, but it can lead to being effective enough. Debate the final score. The entire ambition system is built around using people's final scores. Let's assume the opportunities for learning have been fair, and let's assume the tests are valid. Can we trust the final score they provide us with? At the end of a baseball game, we accept the score. We accept that every time a player legally crossed the home plate, it counted as a run. It is agreed that you rounded first, second, and then third base. Everyone follows the same rules that have been on the books for over a century. In the ambition game, we don't monitor first, second, or third base. Just what crosses home plate. Ambition-centric education values achievement and final scores. Rarely does it take into account how those scores were achieved. The scores, in and of themselves, are only a small representation of who a student is. Sensitivity-centered educators see how the reduction of students to their performance is unfair and not holistic. One fallacy of the ambition-centered school is that student achievement scores are objective data, we use the same assessments across schools or countries, therefore the data is objective. We measure each individual's performance with the same measuring stick. We can use standardized test data to compare your school with others, to compare districts with others, and compare the student achievement between countries. But, since it's a game, we see that most participants involved are doing everything they can to maximize their scores. Strategies for maximizing scores won't be the same between schools or even teachers within a school. So how do we strategically enhance scores? Some may try to enhance scores within the rules by offering extra cram sessions, study booklets or lessons custom tailored to questions on the tests. Some may reduce time spent in other subject areas, often the arts, to prepare for how to answer questions for the maximum number of points. But others may try to enhance scores by bending or breaking the rules on a sliding scale from providing information to students that help answer test questions to telling students answers to actually physically changing the answers a student put on their test. There are also loopholes that schools can exercise quite legally 
One common strategy is to have the scores of low-performing students excluded from a school's overall score, which helps the school's overall results. Now, the thing is, if everyone's tampering their scores and strategically trying to maximize them, we know that none of these numbers are objective representations. Rather, the data represents the outcome of the strategic enhancing of our scores. I mean, it's tough to decide how something is better than something else. It's especially difficult when comparing complex things like human beings and attempting to assess how well-equipped they are for an international job market, society, and their own development in life. The ambition-centered approach to education attempted to make a meritocracy, a meritocracy that would filter for ability and then provide the best options for those who showed the most merit. But the execution of this has problems. The merits used to filter are a relatively small range of competencies that focus on what can easily be measured. It created a system that could be gamified to get the best scores. And this gamification has led to a tainting of the data that it uses to filter people. And many are left behind in this game for reasons out of their control. The sensitivity values response is to deconstruct school in order to overcome the systemic shortcomings of ambition-centered schools. How does the sensitivity value go about doing this? Well, through deconstructing the classroom, deconstructing the curriculum, privileging process and individual thinking, having the teacher as a supporter, negotiation, student voice, and consensus, and developing inclusive students. Deconstructed Classroom Sensitivity education deconstructs the traditional school environment to minimize inequality in school and maximize student well-being. The traditional classroom setup of desks facing a teacher and a blackboard are not optimal for student achievement, nor student well-being. And certain aspects of that setup disadvantage certain individuals. In a sensitivity-influenced classroom, there may be a diversity of desk arrangements and student work areas. These have been designed to match the needs of students. You arrange the room for the benefit of the individuals. There might be various spaces for different activities. Students can be engaged in work from different subject areas at the same time. You might see maker spaces, guided reading corners, tech areas, even quiet zones. Even something as simple as chairs are up for being rethought. Students are allowed to sit on exercise balls or even stand all day if that helps a student's well-being. The idea of what a classroom is begins to fragment. We see a move towards open classrooms, where various classes and grade levels share a similar space. This is often possible due to the removal of walls or redistributing space in the school for common areas or pods. We see a shift towards outdoor classrooms, acknowledging that the fluorescent lights and concrete materials of traditional classrooms lack the calming and connective feel of a more natural environment. Conversely, we see a move towards virtual classrooms too, with online learning programs and the ability to connect with students, classes, or individuals from around the world. Providing opportunities to a school in a particular location that otherwise may not be able to provide these kinds of experiences for students. The school is often integrated into the community as well, or even the local workforce through environmental or community projects. 
the school becomes less of an isolated social entity. The traditional classroom environment gets remixed when sensitivity is calling the shots. Deconstructed curriculum. The school curriculum gets deconstructed. The ambition approach to education and curriculum attempted to neatly sort and separate subjects. It gave us general categories of study, like English, math, science, geography, phys ed, and the arts. Each subject, or discipline, had its own learning objectives that you could be tested and graded on. At the end of the year, you receive a grade in each subject on your report card. Now, the truth is that learning isn't grouped into such categories. Let's deconstruct English class. Essentially, English class assesses your communication skills like reading, writing, speaking, and listening. But your reading, writing, speaking, and listening skills are not only relevant to your performance in English class. Your ability to read, write, speak, and listen ripple out and impact how well you do in all other subject areas too. These skills don't neatly stay within the lines that the ambition-centered school tried to draw around them. Your low writing abilities in English class shouldn't diminish your marks in history class. Let's imagine you had several spelling mistakes in an otherwise incredibly well-argued essay about the impacts of the Spanish Inquisition. Should your lack of spelling skills, which is a writing skill, which is supposed to be assessed in English class, impact your score in history, which in theory is supposed to represent your understanding of history? Why would spelling, a skill from English class, jump categories, jump subjects, and also impact your score in history? Okay, another example. Imagine you are making a poster to explain a concept in science. Your art skills can impact your science scores on this poster. But your tidy coloring and well-designed illustrations, which rely on art skills, shouldn't get you a higher mark in your understanding of science, should they? Often, students lose marks for messy or untidy work. But is tidiness or a lack of aesthetics something that should impact your science mark? A mark that, in theory, is supposed to reflect how well you understood scientific concepts? The first attempt to solve this problem was to develop cross-curricular planning and cross-curricular marking. This meant a single piece of work by a student could be assessed, and the marks are recorded in their relevant subject areas. For example, the poster would be assessed, and the marks would be distributed between both science and art. With the history essay, spelling might count towards your English grade, and your explanation of the Spanish Inquisition counts towards your history mark. Another attempt to solve this was to deconstruct the curriculum away from disciplinary skills towards transdisciplinary skills. To do this, first, you ditch the categories of English, math, science, geography, social studies, etc. You replace them with the skills that are relevant in those subjects. Transdisciplinary skills, as highlighted by the IB system, the International Baccalaureate, in their primary years program, highlight thinking skills social skills, communication skills, self-management skills, and research skills. All of these skills transcend individual disciplines and subjects, and they're actually the center of learning across subjects and contexts. Another way to deconstruct a curriculum is to have topics instead of subjects. Finland is currently experimenting with this. 
The aim of their phenomenon-based learning is to equip children with skills necessary to flourish in the 21st century. Many of these resemble the transdisciplinary skills from the IB. To quote Kirsty Lonka, a professor of educational psychology at Helsinki University from a 2017 BBC article, she says, Traditionally, learning has been defined as a list of subject matters and facts you need to acquire, such as arithmetic and grammar, with some decoration like citizenship built in around it. But when it comes to real life, our brain is not sliced into disciplines in that way. We are thinking in a very holistic way. And when you think about the problems in the world, global crises, migration, the economy, the post-truth era, we really haven't given our children the tools to deal with this intercultural world. I think it is a major mistake if we lead children to believe the world is simple and that if they can learn certain facts, they are ready to go. So learning to think, learning to understand, these are important skills. And it also makes learning fun, which we think promotes well-being. Now, I believe what Christy Lanka highlights here is that ambition-centered education attempt to compartmentalize learning because it made it convenient to assess. But this approach to teaching and assessing made the learning less relevant to how we actually engage with the world outside of school. Therefore, we must deconstruct how we approach curriculum and what is being taught and how it is structured. Sensitivity-centered education also wants to deconstruct how you approach curriculum. You can use multiple teaching methods, different activities for different students, and alternative forms of assessment. Rather than ask the student to conform to the lessons with a sensitivity value, school alters the lessons to meet the needs of the student. Things are no longer one-size-fits-all. Whole class lessons are even less common within sensitivity schools. We know that it is rare for all students to be served best by one approach with the whole class at the same time. Enter differentiated instruction, where we modify content, process, and product. Teachers meet students' needs by modifying the content, what is being taught, the process, how it is being taught, and the product, how students demonstrate their learning. This means the class isn't pulled along by the middle. The low achievers aren't left behind, and the high achievers aren't bored and unchallenged. We can also create individual education programs, knowing that some students are behind or ahead of the averaging class. For example, in a grade 4 classroom, you might have students doing math work at the level they are at. That might mean when practicing addition as a class, some students are still working on simple addition from grade 2 because they still haven't mastered the necessary skills for more complex addition, while others are working at grade 6 level. The idea of grade 4 level expectations becomes more of a general aim as opposed to the necessary demanded standard. Privileging process and individual thinking. Traditionally, doing well in school meant you did well in the world. Meaning doing well in school opened the doors to getting you a good position. But doing well in school, which means getting good marks, wasn't a guarantee that you would perform well in that position. The gap between what it takes to get high scores in school and what it takes to perform well in an actual job has begun to reveal itself. 
To measure student achievement, you must mark and assess what students do. And it is more convenient to assess what is easy to measure. What is easy to measure has been privileged as being most important. That which is not easy to measure is often discarded. Our workforce is finding out and telling us that the soft skills are vital to performance in the workplace. Yet, soft skills like communication, people skills, problem solving, leadership, critical thinking, attitude, teamwork, metacognition, work ethic, and reflection are not easy to measure. Because these skills are not measured, they are not used to filter people towards certain careers. Yet, employers are demanding proficiency in these not easy to measure soft skills. Sensitivity centered schools often put these soft skills front and center. Testing in the ambition system relies heavily on simple, one correct answer or limited range of answer type questions, whereas soft skills can't be accurately assessed in such a way. Sensitivity centered schools attempt to meet this challenge by focusing more on assessing the process over a correct answer. We shift away from only marking the right answer. But we also assess the process for how a student got to that answer. Even if a student's work is incorrect in the end, we look for the complexity a student demonstrated along the way. What did they do on the field, not just at home plate? We see this often in math in sensitivity schools that students are marked for how they tried to solve a problem. They are graded on the range of problem solving skills or approaches they tried. And less so on whether the final answer was correct or not. This idea of valuing process has led to many conflicts in the culture wars of math in recent years. Yet the idea that process matters is something that sensitivity brings to the table. The idea that doing well in school leads to good things in the workforce for you has become less true over time. So if right answers are no longer consistently leading to the best opportunities, let's not pretend like they are the be all and end all. Sensitivity centered education tries to show that no single perspective or answer is the ultimate and definite truth. Various perspectives and various approaches have validity, worth, and merit. Teacher as supporter. Within sensitivity centered schools, the teacher shifts from being the sage on the stage, the deliverer of content, to being the guide on the side as students take more control of the learning process. The teacher's role is now to act as a supporter and help a student to do well. The belief seems to be that if a student is not performing well, this is less so the fault of the student, but rather a reflection that the teacher has not found the proper way to scaffold and support the student to do so. The teacher should serve the well being of students by finding ways for school to be enjoyable, meaningful, and engaging. Negotiation, student voice, and consensus. Negotiation, student voice, and consensus are in service of school being more enjoyable, meaningful, and engaging. Everything in school is potentially up for negotiation if it serves fairness for the student. Content, process, and product become a negotiation between the teacher and student. Student interest begins to have more influence on the content being covered, how they will go about learning. And how they will demonstrate their learning. Projects and units often start with student interest regarding what to inquire into. 
Teachers find out what students are interested in learning about a topic and center the focus around questions that students have. Decision-making power shifts from the teacher or the top students towards consensus and attempting to accommodate a win-win for all involved. Inclusive students. Students should see their own value. Students should show what they can do in school, but be sensitive to others in the process. See your value and the value of everyone else. This leads to a focus on class culture. Political correctness is encouraged. Students are often taught to appreciate multiculturalism. Students are encouraged to be tolerant and even promote views that are different than their own. Students' emotional well-being takes center stage. Vulnerability is allowed. You have permission not to participate. You will not be forced to provide an answer. School becomes more sensitive and caring so that students can become who they really are. In summary, since the mid-90s, we have seen the emergence of the sensitivity value in public education. Sensitivity being the awareness of the needs and emotions of others. Students leave the system demonstrating sensitivity so that as a citizen, they demonstrate a capacity for social responsibility and inclusion, which prepares them for an occupation in the connection economy or a socialist-leaning democratic free market. We see this approach to education most in countries that lean towards a more socialist free market. The emergence of sensitivity and its response as a reaction to the shortcomings of the ambition and self-discipline approach to school have brought with it new gifts that the previous two values were missing. Yet, sensitivity-centered education has thrown out some of the positives that the two previous values had. This has led to a growing culture war in education as the three values play tug-of-war over what a school education should look like. Morning, Rob McLeod. Good day, Brennan O'Leary. So we just had a little chat there. We're going to um, try and unpack a little more what you just talked about in the uh, in the opening blurb monologue. Sensitivity. Sensitivity as a dominating or a center of gravity for the values inside school, and why that is not um, not quite as easy to define as as the previous two values. Yeah, and for me, I was drawing on some of my own experience having taught in Canada, where I would say, at least in Ontario, my experience was very reflective of the sensitivity value in education. I, I could definitely see that in play there. And I think I was stuck on the theoretical, but I know you wanted to provide a little bit more of the social and historical context to show how this connects to the society right now. Yeah, because I do, because I think in terms of even in Britain, the, the, the social interactions are furthest down the line in terms of sensitivity. We'll dig into that more later, but I think the deep structural roots of the school system and even society are not um, not quite at the same level as, as maybe our daily interactions are. And um, so I think maybe setting up a little bit of context, we left it in the last episode with um, a statewide or a global move from feudalism to capitalism 
and we entered the 20th century and brought it right up to, to today. But of course, as you kind of hinted at uh, or said that there's um, this, also, that this value emerged that began to put um, uh, fairness or um, maybe justice or uh, equality or um, adhering to people's needs and being sensitive to people's needs began to emerge much more on a, um, on a statewide level um, within the 20th century. And there were a couple of things that, that happened. Um, but when we left it, uh, we had uh, like, uh, within the 20th century, compulsory state-run education had become the norm. Uh, moving from a hierarchical social system towards, in theory, a meritocracy within like a more mature version of capitalism with um, a, like a global economic capitalist system. Um, um, but we also saw socialism um, or, or various forms of socialist capitalism capitalism emerge over the 20th century as well um and i think just to make sure that we're tying this back to what we're saying about education that we've said this several times but i think this is an important point to drive home that the self-discipline value in education is reflecting that kind of feudalist influenced early capitalist military industrial economy that's then, our story, yeah. This is our story. And then that shifted towards more the ambition-centered value in school as we move more towards the free market capitalism. And as we're sure. kind of trying to say now, as the influence of socialism comes in within the capitalist system, we're seeing this shift in the countries that have the most socialist-leaning tendencies. We're seeing their education systems shift towards this sensitivity value sure it's it's worth noting over and over again it's impossible to separate a statewide education system from its current um political climate it's uh, it doesn't it moves generationally so it doesn't uh, other than obviously policy changes but the implication of those changes uh, goes out over multiple generations but essentially um what was happening in the 20th century, maybe 1950s uh, towards the 70s, was that we had this kind of duty and compliance, uh, kind of negotiating or maybe not clashing so much, but definitely having an ongoing conversation with the truth and freedom of the Enlightenment values or the um, capitalist kind of system. So this was kind of going on, and it was a, it wasn't, it was somewhat uneasy at times but they actually go along pretty well and we'll dig further into that the notion of uh, uh, the <clears throat> capitalist leaning schools that go more towards self-discipline and those that are still capitalist but move more towards a socialist or a left-leaning which is kind of what we're talking about here but essentially what I would say is that uh, there's always been the idea that uh, communities should take care of people and this is often run by the church and um, but the idea of the state having responsibility to its poorest or all of its citizens was relatively new nation states in themselves are only a few hundred years old, generally, in their current form. 
And so the Industrial Revolution had put a lot of people in cities um, and conditions as we both read the book Road to Wigan Pier, my hometown's uh, Wigan, and, and this is one of the, um, you read that book and this is a, a pretty clear and a pretty damning kind of uh, explanation or, or view of what industrial uh, life looked like in the in the early 20th century in Northern Britain. And so there was a And for someone who's unfamiliar with books, sorry to stop you there, but sorry, yeah. can you give us just like a condensed taste of it? <laughs> you being a man from Wigan, like that book had a significant impact on me when I read this to get just a glimpse into the life of people within this. Because I, th- I think as we're kind of talking about education from these philosophical viewpoints and from this zoomed out giant, like global wide picture view, sometimes we do lose that sense of just the individual's lives. Um, just a quick check-in, like what's the taste of someone who's living in this in Wigan it is a handful of decades ago? It is your worst um, kind of nightmare of the industrial kind of grim satanic mills of, you know, m- multiple families in, in single rooms and, and, endless working hours with uh, the most unsafe and sanitary conditions, both at work and at home. Um, n- no health care, of course, no, um, no unemployment benefit, nothing that would save you from any sort of accident. Um, and there's a whole bunch of literature in the 20th century, early 20th century, germinal and, um, uh, what's the one? That, what's the the one Jungle that you... by Upton Sinclair. Yeah. And in, in these are three different countries describing essentially the same situation of just abject squalor and absolute misery. What began to happen there is that, I'd say, from the 1850s onwards, trade unions began to emerge. And they demanded things such as universal suffrage so that they could then become part of the democratic system. Um, and even small things like this, reduce the working hours to uh, 10 hours maximum, things like that. And these were very, very hard won battles. These were strikes were you know, whole communities would be, would be um, at starvation level on strike aiming just to push these what we see as absolute human rights through uh through parliament and of course marx emerged from this background engels actually was a factory owner in manchester and marx is um collaborator and um but one of the theories is that britain was already pretty heavily democratic so it didn't really go down the route of say social so uh, soviet communism where it actually entirely took over the um, means of production so you know there was no workers uprising that took over uh, the entire nation and then redistributed the wealth and so the Labour Party emerged out of this, and from the 1940, post Second World War, from 45, um, we implemented one of the first national health services. Everyone in the country was now covered. You go to a doctor, you get your um, any treatment you needed, 
um, we nationalized industries, uh, coal, steel, the postal service, and we set up the welfare state, um, sometimes called the nanny state by its detractors because, you know, the, the argument is it gives too much. We'll come into this more, but essentially unemployment benefit, benefit for having children, old age pensions, and this kind of unraveled across Western Europe as well uh, in a similar time frame. And so we saw this, um, I mean, it, it, people might not say it, sensitivity is the, is the best name for that, but it, it clearly covers the state being forced by its citizens to begin to take care of the citizens and that's still ongoing now this ongoing debate of how um we do that yeah, and i think i think sensitivity in the sense of like hey within our country there are very demanding challenging systems in place whether this is the workforce whether this is taxation whether whatever and we don't want to just be like tyrannical is too strong of a word but we don't want to just be tyrannical towards you we want we kind to of do we we, we <laughs> also you, want letters <laughs> we also want to be sensitive enough that if this game doesn't work out for you there are some safety nets and i'd say Absolutely. the sensitivity extends to it to that degree yeah absolutely hard one battles though i mean another another book uh, the people's history of the united states by howard zinn absolutely amazing documentation of that struggle of that ongoing struggle just to prize some sensitivity some humanity from the fingers of the industrial robber barons and their cronies in in westminster so the other big element that began to emerge over the 20th century which is you've bundled in a lot into your beginning um monologue but i'm not sure how it fits in with sensitivity as an idea but it's the idea of post-modernism or relative truth uh you know the enlightenment values dug into modernist what's called modernist values to to find truth and essentially what happened is we kind of it's a story, of course, but what happened is we found out that there was no real one truth. Um, it's open to interpretation, and it's it's based heavily on context. This is the story of postmodernism, and that can lead you down a dead end. Dead end. It can. It, it has been viewed as nihilistic. Nothing means anything, but the, but there's other interpretations of that too. And what it does lead to is a deconstruction of ideas that before we had just taken for granted, such as truth is one thing, society is this, um, school is this, a curriculum is this. It's, and so critical thinking emerged. And what, what that looked like is the idea of progressive schooling that began to emerge in the 1920s and beyond a lot of it in america and, and um and britain so that's another thing we'll definitely need to kind of talk about more but i just wanted to drop that in there because i think those two events or two 
kind of ideas came out in the 20th century and are very, very strongly related to what you set up in the first uh, part there? Yeah, essentially, I think if I could boil my talk down to two points, it's that school began to take a look at itself and question whether it was doing what it said it was doing accurately and noticed that there were elements of it that were unfair and attempted yeah. to be more sensitive towards the individuals that were in the system. And the second part of that is that there seemed there seems to be a reaction within the sensitivity-centered schools that anything that doesn't look like traditional school is better. And in fact, the more something doesn't resemble the stereotypical traditional classroom, the better it is. Yeah, we'll definitely come back to that point because that you talked about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And of course, it's kind of only fur for me now before we move into schools, talking about schools, uh, to kind of dump on this system a little bit, the way that I did it with the, the other two. You know, I said the first, the self-discipline taken to its extreme leads to exclusion and, 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 and fascism. Um, ambition in its extremes leads to disaster capitalism and the worst excesses of um, the idea here is that this kind of idea of socialism taken to its extreme as we've seen in kind of in some parts of soviet uh, history and within um, mao's china and especially in cambodia under pol pot um that how does the state deal with dissenters how does the state deal with someone who doesn't want to play this game doesn't want to redistribute wealth and doesn't want everybody to have the same thing um and tr traditionally the way it is dealt with them is by murdering them or throwing them in jail so and and this is kind of the 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 concern you have to acknowledge this because the conservative point of view is that oh any form of socialism any form of um nationalization will inevitably is a slippery slope down to uh, down to the gulag and you know Jordan Peterson is prime for this but of course we've seen over the 20th century that there is a balance between socialist policies and economic um, policies. And um, our argument over the next several episodes will be that we're trying to find that balance. We're trying to find a thing that, that benefits individuals and societies and the global community the most. So, Yeah, and we're eking this out in real time. We are figuring this out now what the, as I alluded to, the cocktail in education, but the cocktail in society in general. Like, what happens when you have all of these different values interacting and mingling with each other? The answer is we are literally figuring that out. Yeah. So if we kind of... I wanted to drop in three, uh, three ideas from the, that underpin this, this sensitivity value. I just get your take on it. So the golden rule, treat others how you wish to be treated. I know you've put a spin on it where it's treat others how they wish to be treated, but I think treat others how you wish to be treated works under the idea that we are all at our core 
connected by something. Um, uh, Kant's uh, categorical imperative, which is very similar, which says, act in a way where you're creating universal laws. Everything you do should be the best thing you can do to create a set of um, a society in a world where everything works the best it can. It's almost the same idea. And then the last one, which I think I'll probably come back to a lot within this discussion, is um, a philosopher called John Rawls, who set up a thought experiment called a veil of ignorance. I can't remember if I've spoken about it before with you, but the idea is that you design a society, but you don't know beforehand what role you will play in that society. You don't know if you're young, old, male, female, majority, minority, able-bodied, um, disabled. You don't know any of those facts. And so um, you design your society that way and then see how closely it resembles the society you're in right now. And that will probably throw up some um, of these things we're talking about with injustice or, or oppression or uh, just um, a lack of fairness within a system. So... Just those three small ideas, Rob, can you just... Those those are huge conceptual ideas, but I think they underpin this very strongly. And obviously the golden rule goes back way into antiquity, but... Yeah, let's start start with the golden rule. So I don't think the golden rule is um, owned solely by the sensitivity value. I think you would clearly see the golden rule even at play in self-disciplined schools um, ambition schools and sensitivity. I think the spin on it, as you mentioned already, is what I've heard in, in schools described as the platinum rule, okay. which is, and I would say this concept is influenced by the sensitivity value that, yeah, treat others the way that you would want to be treated is, is a good start. But you have to be sensitive to the fact that not everyone wants to be treated like you. Yeah. You need to have the sensitivity. Um, the social responsibility, the inclusive mindset that you shouldn't assume that others actually want to be treated the way you do. You need to check with them. You need to... That makes a lot of sense, of course, yeah. You need to find out how they want to be treated and then proceed from there. No, that makes a lot of sense because, um, yeah, it's my bias there to assume that we're all going to understand what that shared core is, but let's not. No, this is that's um, yeah, I do like that twist actually. Yeah, and I think that's the twist that's the twist that the sensitivity value brings to that idea. Good, second um, idea can't let's jump from a, a kindergarten rule to Immanuel Kant now. Sure, it's very similar in a lot of its ways though. Can you unpack it a little bit more for me? The idea is yeah. that you should act in a way that does what? It creates universal laws. So basically, whatever you do is fair game for everybody else. So the idea of do as I do as I say, but not as I do. The hypocritical kind of set of actions that and I have to say, I try to avoid it, but I've got kids and I really try <laughs> to avoid this but do as i do as i do not not as i say 
everything I do sets up a system or sets up a set of universal laws and everybody should follow that. Everybody should do what I do and I should do what everybody else does. Of course, there's some context with kids and, and, and uh, th there's some other kind of things to take account of. But basically anything Rob McLeod does, it's fair game for me to do and anything I do is fair game for you to do. Um, with the idea that sooner or later we'll come up with a set of universal laws that everybody wants to and should adhere to. Yeah, I think it's the inquiry or the exploration, the process of figuring those rules out maybe that yeah. lights up the sensitivity value. The sensitivity value looks at this as together, let's see if we can come to a consensus on what these universal laws are less so perhaps you'd see in the ambition or the self-discipline value systems, they might be more inclined to say, well, we've got the rules or authority has said these are our universal rules. I think yeah. at the sensitivity value, there's more of a ongoing dialogue, ongoing process, ongoing inquiry into through consensus together establishing what those rules are those universals it does come back to that idea of relative truths or contextual kind of uh, desires and wants and, and needs versus the idea of are there core human values uh which is a big uh a, uh, a really big topic, but I guess we again will have to come back to this because this is where it's going to clash again and again. It's like, no, we already have our values, and even if we didn't, when we're renegotiating, it wouldn't look like what you say. Well, I think then, if there are those core universal values, we'll get to them all together with no one excluded and no one privileged in the conversation. Together, we would have to unpack that. Sure. Um, okay. And then the roles idea of just, uh, again, it kind of relies heavily on you understanding what that means. And so the more sensitive you are already to the needs of others, the more you would be able to design a society that actually benefited everybody. And, um, yeah, it is a very nuanced idea of, yeah, it's not just let's redistribute all the wealth. But it's also, let's not just have a free market because, yeah. Um, we talked about the pros and cons of both of those. And uh, if we move on to schools here, so... Well, I, I want to make just one point there. Sure. I think where sensitivity might uh, direct its attention to in that hypothetical inquiry is, okay, let's not just look at does the system provide the best possible outcome for the winners or even the majority Yeah. at the bottom end, the most disadvantaged or the people that the cards are rigged against the most, what impact is it having on them? Because we shouldn't be moving forward unless we acknowledge that there are some people who um, either through their own accord or more specifically through the system are going to come out at the bottom of this. And what can we do to make sure that our system is not um, unfair towards them? 
what can we do to to be more sensitive to them and not disenfranchise them and also where does responsibility lie for that because this is uh, depending on uh kind of which value or even which political which end of the political spectrum people are talking on they will are more on the side of actually it's the individual's value. They just need more self-discipline. Need more self-discipline. They need more ambition. They got to want it. You can always win. There's the, you just need to, you just need to want it more. The Dick Whittington story. I don't know if you know this. It's, it's a famous children's story in Britain. He was a, a, a vagrant boy moved to London and through his own ingenuity, mostly selling cats, mostly selling cats. <laughs> he became the mayor of London. And so the story is that you can do it. You just have to be smart enough, good enough, and try hard enough, and you'll get there. And if not, well, life ain't fur, Rob. Life ain't fur. Suck it, it seems up. Like the, it seems like the contradiction exposing itself there. You can Let always it. do it. And if you can't, well, life's unfair. Suck it up <laughs> until until it's not going your way, and it's like read about some of the trade disputes. You know, I read about like the dispute between Europe and Japan, and the 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 European British kind of um, um, manufacturers, especially cars, in the seventies and eighties when they were being decimated by the Japanese kind of expansion, just kicking and screaming. You know, ah, well, no, it's not working. We have to do something. We have to stop them importing cars. I put huge tariffs on because it's not fair. And it's like, same guys turn around later. You don't like you don't like the fact that your welfare has been cut. Suck it up. It's like uh, showing my the mask slipped off there, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I can I can I can get a sense of possibly where some of your values might be or or critiques yeah. of others. All right. Let's move into um, schooling. Um, so, oh yeah, school. School—the thing that we love and now no longer work together in. Yeah. yeah. Just a small side note for anybody who's even remotely interested. Bren and I—we finished our last week of school together at the school we've been teaching at together for the last four season four years, is done. Last yeah. last four seasons of the Robin Brennan Show and. Now Brennan is moving to Japan and I'm moving to Belgium this week to go continue our, our explorations in education. All right, enough about us. Let's talk about education. Enough. So the first thing you might say is that, okay, these communist states that emerged from the 1920s, especially Soviet, the Soviet Union or, or Russia, um, you would expect this to now start to look like this kind of sensitivity in school, but it, it didn't really, when you look at what it looked like, it was essentially still possible, almost certainly because of the wider social nature and the militaristic and the industrial nature of the time. It was still, uh, school was very um, self-discipline led. It, it does not look like the kind of school that we're going to put forward as a sensitivity value-led school. Um, and uh, likewise, a lot of technical schools or schools that w would promote kind of hands-on uh, uh, learning earlier in the 20th century were really just preparations for industrial work. Um, 
vocational schools. So they were still heavily based on self-discipline rather than exploration or sensitivity to needs. But it is with, in, in the probably 30s, 1930s, that in Britain and especially the US, progressive schools began to emerge. So you got the philosophy of John Dewey that was heavily based on experiential learning um, experience and reflection on the experience is where true learning happens. Um, and he had a, a, um, a laboratory school, it was called in Chicago, that tried to promote this within all of the aspects of the school. And let's, had, let's contrast that with what we're saying a typical school education looks like. So how does experiential learning differ from, say, a traditional lesson or lecture or activity that might be done in a classroom? I think we'll get more into the, the nuts and bolts of what that looks like. But it, 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 theoretically, and I'll just drop in a couple of more before I go into like the clues that you know this is a sensitivity-led school. Um, ideas of schools such as Summerhill, which were run somewhat democratically, a boarding school in Britain where students could choose to attend certain subjects and they chose how to spend their day and a lot of discipline and behavior problems were attempted to be solved democratically. And then Montessori, uh, Maria Montessori with early experiential learning. Um, and then a little bit later, Jerome Bruner, who came up with the idea of uh, the thing called MAN, a course of study, where he attempted to boil down humanity into six or so uh, themes. They kind of became what the IB primary years program uses as transdisciplinary themes, but he essentially tried to boil down into um, things such as how societies work together and, and technical innovation and um, look at each one of those as a thematic idea. He also came up with the idea of a spiral curriculum, which we do have in most mainstream schools now where you would touch on a, an idea at a, at a simple level and then you would come back to that idea every three, six or 12 months or so. It happens a lot in mathematics particularly. So you'd start off with addition at a very small level and you would keep coming back to it and reteaching more strategies and higher um, levels of it. So these are things that all emerged in, in maybe a 30 or 40 year period in Britain, the US. Um, um, so the clues that you would see that you were going into a more progressive or sensitivity-led school at that time, and, and even today, was conceptually, it was seen as the difference between filling an empty vessel. The student was there for you to fill up their head with your, with your knowledge, and rote learning is a very good way for this, and memorization, versus the idea that you're lighting a fire within them. You are treating the student as a... As a individual who can move off in infinite different directions. Um, I'd even like to offer just a subtle distinction there. I think the, the vessel, the filling of the vessel is probably 
most closely associated with the self-discipline schooling, where just sure. being there was enough. Yeah, You're here for the lesson. We filled you up. You did what you needed to do. Yeah, I've heard um, another example used, which I'd probably associate with the ambition, which is the bank analogy of I fill you up with some information, and then on the test I withdraw whatever was there, and that determines your score. And sure. then I'd say most closely connected to the sensitivity idea is this idea of, no, no, we're lighting a fire within the individual that they will come to information that's relevant to them or you know, their, their achievement, their self-discipline, those things will happen because of their own inner fire, their own interest. Yeah, I mean, that's key. <clears throat> that's key to it, this idea, because one thing you did mention earlier is that um, a sensitivity school sets up uh, someone to be a citizen with social responsibilities, and it sets you up to work in a, I guess, a socialized or a socialist economy to some extent, or a collaborative a communal economy that is sensitive to the needs of the customers above and beyond making a profit. But what you didn't really touch on at that point was the idea of self-development as a human, this idea of flourishing as a human. And it had no real place in the two previous value systems. It was of little or no relevancy. In the um, self-discipline it is of no relevancy whatsoever how you develop as, a, as an individual unless you are an outlier, unless you are a massive outlier who's going to run the country. But you, even then, you're in your, you're in your place within the hierarchy. It, it's subtle, but I would say the self-development at the self-discipline level is literally, can you control your impulses? And to what degree can yep. you in order to navigate your life? And Okay either yeah control them enough to not break the law and get in trouble sure or control them enough to be a good contributing member to this large pyramidal system yeah and then with the ambition value your self development in school particularly was um very much along the lines of what we are going to teach and assess if you mm -hmm. want to develop in a different way, we can celebrate that. If you go out at the weekends and become a top-class gymnast or do some fantastic um, artwork and bring it in, we have a place to celebrate it. But it doesn't get you any academic capital. It doesn't, doesn't get you much further in this game unless at some point you go off into the filter and come back in at, at, and to go to art school. Or, or get taken on by a football team and get signed up to, uh, into their academy or something like that. Yeah, there's, there's an interesting thing that like almost every school I can think of has some version of a talent show at some point. And it's almost kind of like, well, here's the one day or afternoon of the year where we can celebrate your achievement and accomplishment and ambition in things that aren't going to affect your report card, Mark. No. Nope. Your incredible you piano recital here yeah doesn't doesn't even have a place in our music program because we don't assess piano skills in our 
in our music uh, curriculum. The idea is, I've heard this, uh, this is not mine, but at some point there was a teacher in Liverpool in the 1950s that had George Harrison and Paul McCartney in the same music class. It didn't seem to my eyes that they were promoting those, those boys as, some, <laughs> as, as anything special. Um, we can talk much more about how um, people such as entrepreneurs um, not only subvert the system, but are actually celebrated massively for it. The amount of lists of, well, Einstein didn't do well at school, nor did Winston Churchill. And um, yeah. All these famous CEOs dropped out of school. They dropped out of school, but you don't because they were something special. So, and it is, it is a, uh, uh, it is a somewhat complex idea of how that filtration system not only filters you out, but lets you back in uh, and then celebrates what you've done. Okay. So we, yeah, we kicked Elton John out at 14, but now he's a multi-billionaire. We want him to come back and build a new wing for our school. Of course we do. But I think those, the reason we tell that story of the dropout yeah. is because at the end of the day, they showed more ambition yeah. than anybody. The Richard Branson's, all these sorts of stories, sure. they went on to become quabillionaires like the richest people on the planet because of their ambition and we're it's willing right to celebrate their story because yeah. of their ambition we don't celebrate the story of oh yeah well they dropped out of school at 15 and have been you know like teetering on bankruptcy ever since and yeah. just didn't get their stuff together and you know failed marriages and and then they were sick for a while and it was really unfortunate and just things have never come around for them we don't tell that story. Well, yeah. This guy we, left we school at 16. When, and when, he's done nothing since. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. When you don't, don't have ambition, we don't tell that story. No. No, you're, you're right. It, is, um, it all plays into the game. It's the rags to riches story. Um, but there's an irony within you don't do that because you're not special. You stick to this path and we'll, we'll get you where you need to be. Well, and I think this comes to the outliers versus the, the mean, median, and the mode. Like, yes, for sure, there are the outliers who the Richard Bransons, all these people we're now mentioning, but they're the 0.0001% of, of this. And it was their insane level of ambition that allowed them to get there, plus, obviously, several other factors, right place, right time, systemic pieces, all that stuff. However... Sure. For the other 99.9999% of people, sticking within the system is, is your better shot than opting out of the system for someone who doesn't have the outlier level of ambition. All right. So off in the weeds a little bit there, but I think it was an interesting thing we wanted to talk about in the last episode that we didn't really get to and hopefully get back to it. But clues that you're in... Uh, a, a progressive school would be that student well-being was front and center. It was right there. Values-led education. Again, the IB at PYP um, has a learner profile, which is values and attitudes that are uh, very much um, front and center. Uh, experiential learning, as we've said, an integrated curriculum that, that does not... Um, always or, or ever um, 
break off into subject disciplines and subject specific skills it's all um integrated um problem solving and critical thinking um social skills um understanding and comprehending and analyzing as opposed to just memorization um social responsibility personalized learning community service lifelong learning negotiation i'll come back to all of those i'm just dropping them in there because those are all things we have not talked about so it's not like this is a small change <clears throat> this is a huge fundamental change that has happened more in some areas in some schools in some um nationalities and nations than others and but i think all, for and yeah. for a lot of people listening to this um you know i'm 36 i went through public school late 80s into the mid 90s i would argue that the public school i went to was on the absolute cutting edge in ontario in terms of the sensitivity value emerging that was largely due to a handful of incredible teachers and a head of school principal who was all for it and i think i got the first drips of what that looked like in ontario but i think the education most people my age even in ontario and i would imagine you'd say something similar for where you grew up we didn't experience this i got it i got the earliest days of it but yeah. the schooling kids got 20 years ago in ontario by and large, does not look like what it looks like now. And I know when I started teaching, I heard that constantly from parents was, mm -hmm. well, this doesn't look like what I experienced 15, 20 years ago. This is something totally different. So and it's I, better or it's worse. Yes. Often that will come. It's obvious that that's going to come next. It's better or it's worse. And um, you want to have the dialogue with parents. You want to have the conversation that this is why it's different and this is how i try to approach a conversation with parents when we are doing something different hey when i was at school our science unit involved us going out and collecting leaves and looking at them actually yeah we did that in the first two days but the next 40 days were talking about the effects of um the different types of leaves and the different types of trees and, and the plants within the forest and how they interact with the animals and the, and the, the community around it. Oh, okay. I see. So actually you're, maybe you didn't spend as long on the memorization of the types of uh, trees and their names. You did spend some time on that. And I do appreciate that you've spent a, a larger amount of time on actually questioning the, how those things connect with each other and what that means. Um, so I think as long as you are doing those, um, as long as you, you understand your rationale for doing it and you're thinking it through and you're open to having that conversation with all of the people who have this kind of agenda within school parents being one of them, this idea, then you get a negotiation. It does not mean that you just back out and say, Oh yeah, of course, we'll just spend the next six weeks doing what you want. No, there's a rationale and let's have the discussion and be aware that I am spending a lot of time on this within my job so i'll listen to you but the negotiation isn't necessarily um a 50 50 split when you're talking about a negotiation there between parents and the teacher I yeah think and we need even even more of a hallmark of the current sensitivity approach is the negotiation between the students and teacher 
But yeah. I think you're also highlighting that it kind of seems everywhere there's there's some wiggle room. There's space for the parents' perspective. There's space for the community's perspective on what should be going on. As soon as you realize or as soon as you acknowledge that there are multiple interpretations of what we should be doing, then it starts to make sense to be sensitive to the opinions and needs. But it does slow you down, of course. Hey, we know what we have to do. There's a place for that. We're going to come back to this in the next few episodes, especially the next one. There is a place for, no, this is what we're doing right now for this reason. And the time for negotiation is, is, is later. I mean, going back again to my kids, my son gets his screen time or whatever. He's two minutes from the end of screen time. And then he decides it's time to negotiate some more because it's not fair that he only has this amount of time or, or X, Y, Z. It's like, no, that's not the time to negotiate. You do what you need to do now. And then we will find a time to talk about why it's unfair or why it's fair. And I tried to take that same mentality into my kind of negotiations with uh, everybody within the school. Of, of balancing that. Again, we're starting to talk now about that kind of balance between the values, but it's worth dropping it in now to say, yeah, that doesn't mean you're a pushover. It doesn't mean that you, you'll throw away every rule all of the time. A negotiation should end with some kind of contract. I mean, an underpinning of the uh, ambition value that's followed into the sensitivity value is the social contract. It is what keeps us uh, functioning as a as a group um, so what I would say is that what you said there is is really true about um i didn 't have i think this well being in terms of day to day relationships was always there my um hometown very friendly very community based in the sense that people look after each other people care about each other generally and um so your day-to-day -day interactions generally with adults were very positive and very kind. However, none of the things we talked about with like developing social skills or analysis or personalized learning um, collaboration, these were, these were by no means on the, on the cards. I took my GCSEs, this, the, the exams we take at 16, it was the second year they'd come in. And this was the beginning of, of what we talked about last time of schools becoming a competitive kind of marketplace. And the idea that now at 16, you got these, these uh, test results and they would dictate where you went next. But I think what happened in Britain is that these ideas began to f flow in from the margins through places such as early years. So coming in through the nursery, kindergarten, and what we call reception class at five, six years old, coming in from special needs classes, which are a hallmark of this kind of sensitivity value. And we need to talk about this a lot more too, but the idea in uh, the ambition value is that, sure, we'll differentiate between people who can and cannot will stream you but that's not quite the same as taking into account your needs and so in britain we moved away from what we called special schools which were schools for children with the disabilities and we began to integrate and try to include 
this inclusive mentality began to try and bring more and more students into the mainstream. Uh, a big part of it was due to cost as well, of course. There's no denying that, but, but also bringing students in so that that changed the nature of what the school needed to do. So um, these ideas came in from special needs. And then we started to acknowledge that actually this one size fits all. There's a 10% of 5% of the our top end of the academic scale that we're also not meeting. And there's just this nagging doubt that maybe, so it's kind of like they're still filtering in very slowly from these three or four different directions. I talked a lot there, Rob. Do you want to pick up on any of that? Well, I think the through line in everything you just said is the idea that school starts to center itself around the student's needs is the shift at sensitivity. Whereas previously it was more about within the ambition system, within the self-discipline system, it was far more about the system's already here and it's not changing. At self-discipline, it's like you, you clash with the teacher, you don't want to do what we're doing. There's no place for that. There's no place for your interest or your needs here. Within yeah. the ambition system, I think it starts to step away from that and goes, hey, we've set up this system, this game. You know, we will do some things to make sure you're not horribly disadvantaged. We'll totally provide you with some things to try and help you out here, but you're doing this. And there's no real negotiation on what this is about. You're playing our yeah. game. And that's, you can't just do what you want. Yeah, you're you playing our game. We want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if what you want to do isn't part of our game, go for it. But you're not going to get any merit. You're not going to get any points from it. Whereas with the sensitivity value, it starts to begin to say, "Well, how can we accommodate school for the needs of the kid? What do we need to be doing different as a system?" There's more flexibility within the school in theory, saying. How do we rearrange ourselves to best suit the learning, to best suit the student's achievement? How can we alter things to best meet their needs so that they can achieve well? Yeah, I think there's a deep, there's a, a deep kind of dichotomy between the ambition and the sensitivity on that value because the very first thing that will pop up if you speak to someone who is more self-discipline or ambition leaning is that's not going to get you a job. Mm -hmm. There's an irony in that. We've talked about it already. I literally have sat next to in a meeting, a guy who had the same job as me <laughs> and I did an art degree. And he literally said to me, you, you, why do you do an art degree? That's not going to get you a job. <laughs> Hopefully I don't have to point out the irony in that too much, but he has, he has a point. He has some point. I had to go and do an extra year to get my teaching certificate, but you do that anyway in Britain. So it, there's some truth to both. A sensitivity school that goes too far down the line into meeting your needs may not meet needs that you don't see you have yet because you might want to plug into an education system. I think this is the point that maybe the point to drop in something that my talking a lot about my kids here, but I got a 13 year old son and a nine year old daughter, and I asked them both about homeschooling and even unschooling. And both of them, after 
saying they kind of liked it in some ways. They'd missed the social component. And we talked about how that still exists in many ways. You find other homeschooled kids. They were like, yeah, but what about if I want to go to university? You know, I won't be able to get in. And that was the sticking point for them. That was like, okay, I'm going to stick with this ambition-led system. It was a hypothetical. I'm not in a position right now to homeschool or unschool. But um, they were like, no, I'm going to stick with this. I'm going to get my academic capital. I'm going to get my um, my test scores. And I'm going to go to university if that's what I want to do. So this is ingrained in the kids. This is a nine-year-old kid. <laughs> you know? oh, I've, heard it, I've heard it at a younger level. I taught um, junior kindergarten and senior kindergarten when in Canada. And like the youngest you can be, you could still be three years old entering that system in junior kindergarten with the cutoff date. So the age range is roughly three to six year olds, somewhere in that range. And I know I heard junior kindergarten students, like three, four or five years old, saying to me, like, well, I want to do good on my report card so that I can get a good job and get a lot of money. That's good. I mean, we get we have to get into Piaget and the development uh, of, of kids because at that level, they're kind of saying that so you'll pat them on the head and say good boy as well. It's not, I think my son now at 13 is moving into the, the point where he's actually like, no, this is a prop, this is a plan. Whereas the younger kids are like, I'm saying the right thing, you know, please love me. <laughs> please pat me on the head and give me a star. We'll get into that a little bit more because the motivation of kids clearly changes. But yeah, it's like, it's, it's deeply ingrained and we can't avoid that either. But I think one thing I want to mention here as we go forward is the kickback for sensitivity schools is coming very heavily now because of the mental health effects or just the pressure, the high stakes testing that continues to become more intense is having on humans people of all ages who are part of this whether you're a parent or a student or a teacher um, it can be a healthy motivator but the narrative especially from a more sensitivity kind of value you read any guardian newspaper article by education it's all about the mental health of students it's all about the suffering that this system is causing and so as we're talking about mainstream schools here it's like well this is the narrative now that we need this ambition but it's also have we're paying a heavy cost right now in 2018 for it yeah, there's the, I think there's two pieces here. One is the mental health side, and that's definitely emerging as a narrative in school to say what we're doing is having some disastrous effects on the mental well-being of our youth. And this is spiraling out into all kinds of problems that we're just beginning to see further down the line. The other side of it, too, is if you look at the ambition game of, hey, the best marks are going to open up the best opportunities, which using this logic will give you the best possible potential life style once you enter the workforce. We, not we, some people want to do everything possible to ensure the best possible score. And again, why, why wouldn't you sure. want that if the payoff, it comes down the road. You've had more firsthand experience with it, having been in Japan and 
knowing like the insane level of after school tutoring programs that can go on where, you know, I've heard stories, I've read articles of kids who are essentially spending like 14 hours a day in lessons, instruction, you know, they, they do their yeah. schooling and then leave school to go to like one, two, three, four separate hour or two hour long tutoring courses to not only help their scores, but to get them sure. a head start for it's, next year. It's and, called Juku. It's an after school cram school program. And um, if you're behind, you need it because you need to catch up. If sure. you're ahead, you need it so you can get a better score on your... Uh, for your entrance exam for your next um, step up the ladder and if you're in the middle you can need it too so that you don't slip behind um, um, I, we got to get into this like another time because well i'll just pause it there to no, say no, yeah, where sorry. where sensitivity comes in whether it's that example or the other you can find examples of something like this everywhere that's yeah, trying to maximize sure. scores at some point a lot of people stop and go hold on do we want childhood to look like this? Is this what we want childhood to look like? Do we want a kid who has every moment outside of school booked for some kind of program, some kind of lessons, some sort of thing to give them the advantage later? Is this what we want childhood to look like? And I think that question begins to come from the sensitivity value to say, okay, yeah, sure, maybe pulling them out of this Maybe it does close a few doors down the road. Maybe, sure, they're going to get a B instead of a B plus. Maybe, sure, maybe there's some cost to this. But the cost right now of yeah. spending their childhood in these lessons as opposed to playing, exploring, having fun, getting popsicles all over you, like at some level that voice begins to come in to say, is this really meeting the needs of the kids? Now your mask just fell off there, you bloody hippie. But um, because I'm speaking for they, others, not myself. You're speaking for others, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, the 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 thing is that the the conversation is being had at an individual level. It's individual parents worrying and making that decision, and on a state level, it's it's kind of still very much well opt in there is an opt out in britain there's an opt out of course there is but it's, it's at your risk and it's often that the risk is too high for most middle class parents who might be in the position even to do it working class parents are in no position to do that anyway you cannot opt out you do not have money for um private schooling you don't have the time to homeschool that's a whole different thing i mean this is something you, I'll just kind of jump into this now because I think we're going to give ourselves another five to 10 minutes on this before we kind of wrap up. But um, let's just move to the side of the idea of the, even entering the system and leaving the system and going through it, you are, uh, you are in a context that is uh, behavioral and cultural and financial and uh, biological so you are as a human going in there with a different set of um potentials and a different uh just a completely different lifestyle and setup from 
another human that's going into the same school or another school and the one size fits all was a solution but it completely ignores most of those factors um until sensitivity comes in and says no hold on you you should differentiate your work so this is the story in britain let's just look at the classroom we won't have time to go into how we deconstructed the curriculum so much or things like that but i think this idea of differentiation is a huge one that came in in britain north america and and not so much in a lot of other places but um three levels of differentiation is what we talk about so you go into your class you if i'm doing let's simplify and let's say i'm doing a, a a maths lesson based on um addition there'll be three different levels um of of work of task and they're all related to addition in some way some um, easier some in the middle some more challenging yeah uh, on its simplest level it would be like you're doing one plus one you're doing 20 plus 20 and you're doing 87 plus 93 and that might be a, a grade two kind of like range for something like that something very mechanical so even within that mechanical rote kind of learning kind of system there's still differentiation and they would say if you you must have that in your class you teach the this and then anyone that falls beyond that is a special need if they fall beyond the top level they're what we call gifted and talented if they fall beyond the the, the lower level the a special need and we need to have some extra program in place for them that's kind of a very very big change within mainstream british schools that has happened purely because of this sensitivity value that's come in that has said actually it's not good enough to just stream them you're in the top set and you're in the bottom set that's just streaming that's just saying like you're good enough and you're not good enough. now this is actually saying this is where you're at this is where you're at this is where you're at and you guys here are outside of our uh, kind of like statistical kind of groupings and so we are going to put in some extra programs to uh, meet your needs it's cynically within the british system still operating from the needs that will get you the test scores that we need you to get for our statistics but it is still being driven by that sensitivity value yeah and i, I think that's the key point is within sensitivity you break down this idea that there's a archetypal student who can move through the game and you switch it to like oh no every player is insanely different i don't know anything about dungeons and dragons but i'm trying to make an analogy off the top of my head like oh this isn't monopoly where we all start on the same square and march through the same thing this is dungeons and dragons where each player begins with completely unique makeups of abilities strengths weaknesses and powers well you're kind of almost describing the two types of say um current video games is your sandbox and your kind of more constructed kind of world so minecraft is a good example there's two modes in minecraft you can play the um the kind of narrative mode where you have a story and a challenge that you're trying to complete and you can play the sandbox mode where you are free to create what you want and i think in in, in many ways those two kind of modes show up 
um, the the two values, the ambition versus the um, the sensitivity, in many ways. Um, and, but then you're entering the game with your own set of skills. Your your um, I won't go too far down that that metaphor, but your own kind of like set of tools or whatever, and it's like it's how you apply them. And it's like I plug into an ambition system with these tools and I can do really well or not so well. I, I can also plug into a sensitivity system with the same tools and do very, very different um, acts for very different reasons. Um, it, the, but yeah, they will clash. They will clash. I've said it already several times because we are still, however much sensitivity led values we push into our school system on a national and global level we are heavily heavily into the middle of a global capitalist kind of like hegemony and that is undeniable and that is where schools like the ib i'm going back into a an ib primary year school and i love the system um there's it's a new system. It's, it's less than 20 years old, so it's got many, many years to go before it reaches any kind of maturity in, in, in the same way that, say, the ambition system has. But um, it does offer um, a, a different route. It doesn't address that issue yet, that once you leave the primary years, you plug into a middle years program, which is more disciplinary. And then you plug into a diploma program, which is essentially setting you up for university and maybe doesn't look that different to an A-level program in, in Britain, other than having a theory of knowledge element TOK where you kind of have to deconstruct um, knowledge and learning but a um, philosophy course might do something similar as well at a level so even within the ib which is probably the most um, established sensitivity school system it's still once you hit about 12 years old starting to edge you closer to plugging into that um, current global capitalist economy because it needs to or it feels it needs to yeah and i think for me where i would kind of wrap up our conversation here is to say you're totally right at the end of the day even if the ambition school system is in this tug of war once you leave the school system in most capitalist societies the it's the ambition achievement centered things that have probably the largest impact on how well you do outside of school and have a huge impact on how you can strategically navigate the economy and, and work your place up a social ladder. Yeah. But in terms of what that means for school, we are really saying that at the end of the day, this ambition value is calling like 95% of the shots. Yeah. But where it seems the culture war in education is at right now is to say, okay, ambition in the middle here, achievement, student achievement is the most important thing. But the tug of war is happening between self-discipline on one side and sensitivity on the other to say, 
well, the best way to go about achievement is either through self-discipline or the best way to student achievement is through sensitivity. And both can make pretty compelling cases. And I think this is, you know, without the whatever like nine hours of context we've provided now, this is what's happening in education right now. This is the discussion, but no one's framing it this way. Essentially, we're saying the best way for students to achieve is let's go back to what worked before, drills, self-discipline, hard work versus, oh, well, you know what's in the way of students achieving? The systemic inequalities that we have. And when we alter them in a more sensitivity-approached school, miraculously, many kids can achieve pretty well. Yeah, I mean, we teach for day one of your job. We teach you to get the interview. We teach you to get your foot in the door and sit there and do your first day of work. What what I hear from business, from industry, is um, what about day 1,000? What about your third, fourth, fifth year? You've learned on the job all of those things. Of course you have, but wouldn't it make sense to learn those softer skills of collaboration and uh, social self-management early on and explicitly not grabbing it here and there and not learning it by hitting your head up against it, but explicitly learning. And this is a word we haven't used anywhere near enough. And I'm hoping we use it a lot more, but learning. Yeah. Yeah, you've, you've said it there, but I think that's the one last point to hit home. These soft skills are explicitly taught and explicitly put front and center as you move more into the sensitivity value. Of course, teamwork was an issue in the ambition system. Of course, like we all did team group projects and things like that. Like, of course, that was present. But in terms of teaching and learning teamwork skills on the explicit level, for me, that didn't happen. What did happen was you got penalized or in trouble when you didn't show teamwork skills. Yeah. So this is the banging your head against the wall and being punished when you don't do it rather than, and this is the grab bag. This is one of the uh, stories we hear a lot in education is that there are several components to reading for example there is comprehending there is um there is um decoding there's decoding there's also connection between ideas there's um synthesis there's there's synthesis but the the idea yeah the idea being that we grabbed these elements randomly through our schooling so synthesizing ideas or summarizing or connecting, they are uh, things we grabbed. They weren't explicitly taught, oh, hold on. You want to be able to summarize this piece of work for this reason, and this is how you do it. Maybe you had some lessons on that. Maybe you didn't. This is how you um, would connect ideas, and this is why. Um, that's a little bit to the side, but it's basically making the point that making learning explicit, making thinking explicit is going to be a big thing in this sensitivity value. We've gone way out, gone global and gone off into the weeds for a long time there, McLeod. I'm hoping 
people have enjoyed it and followed it and I'm hoping they can um, comment on it and get back to us. I think we, we want to start having more of those conversations, but um, we're going to move into the next episode. If this is our Empire Strikes Back where things might look pretty bad, might look pretty bleak, we're going to start moving forward into how can we balance those three big values, not lose, not throw the baby out with bathwater. How can we wisely um, balance those three values so that they meet the needs of the people within the society, within the school? Yeah, the three we've laid out so far, the self-discipline, ambition, and sensitivity, to some degree, they see themselves as the only answer, as like, as the answer to it, and as being yeah. better than the other values. They privilege themselves as this is how you should be living your life. This is what school should look like. The next value we're going to bring in of development is the first one that says, okay, yeah, I, I also think this is the best way to go about it, but I'm it's not so much I'm bringing a new value to the table, but I want to put these previous three into a tool belt. I want to take the best parts of self-discipline, the best parts of ambition, and the best parts of sensitivity, and try to shake off their shortcomings and attempt to systematically synthesize them in order to serve development. Yeah, explicitly and wisely and, and um, skillfully manage those three values. Um, great. So when we do meet up in um, two weeks for what is more or less the last episode of this first season, it'll be episode seven, um, we um, will be in different countries. Mm -hmm. You in we'll Japan? We'll be well into summer season. Yeah. Yeah. It's been uh, it's been a good four years, Rob McLeod. We don't have to do a public goodbye right now, Brendan. And I'll see you on the other side of this internet, my good friend. Thanks, Brendan. Don't cry. Don't cry, Rob. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>